Today, I'm having a conversation with L.O. Flaherty. She is an attorney-turned-executive coach who shares her unique journey from the legal world to becoming a trusted expert in ADHD coaching. Elle, who also has ADHD, enlightens us on the strengths and challenges that come with this neurodiverse condition. From the legal community to the healthcare industry, we explore how ADHD individuals can excel in their professions and thrive in a neurotypical world. And as a bonus, we also talk about how leaders can create more inclusive work environments for those who are neurodiverse. So if you're ready to dive into a thought-provoking discussion on ADHD, innovation, and creating an ADHD-friendly workplace, then stick around. You won't want to miss a minute of this fascinating conversation. Let's get started. Welcome to Life, Love, and Leadership for Physicians podcast. Here, we explore the central topics of intentional life design, boundaries, health, wellness, and leadership for physicians. I am dedicated to helping you create meaningful structures in your life that support both professional and personal growth. Hi, I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Miller. I've tackled some of the same issues that many of us in the medical field struggle with such as creating meaningful connections, imposter syndrome, and having a life outside of the office. Join me each week as my guests and I tackle these topics and so much more, delivering content that shows you the importance of investing time into yourself beyond caring for those around you. Tap the follow button so you never miss an episode. Hey, physicians. Hey, leaders. Thank you for joining me this week. I have a special guest here. This is Elle of Flaherty, an executive coach, and you have specific training in working with people who have ADHD and working with leaders who lead people who have ADHD and who are neurodivergent. And so I'm so happy you're here to have this conversation with me because this is something that's not talked about very much in the medical field as it relates to leadership. So thank you for joining me today. It's such a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So I'd like to start off with, you know, one of the things that I learned in our conversation earlier was that up to 68% of professionals don't disclose that they are neurodivergent. Why do you think that is? Great question. And that's such an unfortunate statistic. It all has to do with the ADHD stigma, which unfortunately is real and alive. And about uh, more than 90% of neurotypical people have a negative association with ADHD. So there's a huge stigma. We're usually portrayed in media and TV, you know, movies as like the butt of the joke and this funny thing. And it's always kind of the negative side of ADHD. A separate study found that of the people who do disclose, half of them are either overlooked for a promotion, they don't receive the accommodation they requested, or they end up being fired. So there are pretty serious repercussions when people do disclose sometimes. One of the things I picked up on what you just said, you said we. So I'm curious on how do you identify in this world of neurodivergent and ADHD? So I am very proudly a member of the ADHD community. I have combined type. Now under the DSM-5, there are three different types, which means that I have both the hyperactivity and impulsivity. 
And I also have the um, inattentive, sort of the daydreamy part. What the DSM-5 will tell you is all bad news. What it doesn't tell you is I really believe that my ADHD has been the complete secret to my success from starting my business and just everything that's happened. It's honestly gotten me where I am today. And it's amazing. I always start out my presentations on ADHD with the strengths because pretty much no one does. And so, yeah, I'm very proud to be part of the community. And I also feel like it's important that I speak up because a lot of us can't. So, Elle, one of the things that you didn't mention yet is about your law degree. So I'm curious on how did your ADHD contribute to your success through law school? Good question. So I was an attorney for almost 20 years before I pivoted to being a coach. You know, it was a challenge there because I wasn't diagnosed until I was an adult, which is really common for especially women. But I think it really, it helps because we're known for being very creative. We don't filter out as much information as neurotypical people do. And so we can make these connections because we see a lot of different things at the same time. And when you're trying to put together a new argument that's persuasive and that's interesting, I think that's an incredibly helpful thing to have. And it's one of the reasons why we're so overrepresented in the legal community. And then later, when I moved on from pure litigation to doing more policy work, again, that outside the box thinking was really, really helpful because I don't necessarily see what is, but I see what could be. So when you're thinking about like new ways to do things and new policies, it's really helpful. So I do kind of think ADHD has been my secret. Yeah, that's really neat. You know, I'd love to just rewind a little bit because I had to actually do some research and learn the terminology of neurodivergent, neurotypical. And so for those that are listening who aren't really familiar with the proper terms and what neurodivergent actually means and what neurotypical actually means, I'd love for you to explain so that we can use the appropriate terminology when and where we should be using it. Oh, I'd be happy to. So neurodivergent are folks who have different brain wiring than the majority of people who we call neurotypical. And in my case, that has to do with ADHD. It's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. People used to call it ADHD or ADD, but in the most recent version of the DSM-5, ADD has kind of fallen under the umbrella of ADHD. And now there are three different kinds. So there are folks who are inattentive. These might look like your daydreamers. People are looking out the window who you might say, did you hear what I just said? And they'll be like, what? (laughs) Then there's hyperactive, which is what most people picture, seven-year-old boy bouncing off the walls. And then the most common type, about 60% of us are combined type, which that's me. And we have a little bit of both. But it's really been great that now people are recognizing that ADHD can show up very differently in girls and boys sometimes, in adults and children. And um, especially women have been very much underdiagnosed because folks just didn't recognize it. Yeah. In your experience, at what point did you realize that there was something different about the way that you learned and process information? Um, Very early on. It's super common for ADHD kids to be the ones that other kids call weird because we, we see what could be. One example that really sticks out in my mind is, you know, I grew up in Virginia in the 80s 
And when I was in second grade, we were all making tissue paper flowers for Mother's Day. My favorite color was black. So I made an entirely black tissue paper rose. And that was super not acceptable in Virginia in the 80s. You know, I just I knew from a really early age and I certainly knew years before I ever got a diagnosis that I was ADHD. But it's a scary thing to acknowledge because there's such a big stigma. And I thought it was such an awful thing that it took me a long time just to be okay with it. Yeah. I'm sure that took a lot of internal motivation for you to go from creating a beautiful black flower to, you know what, I'm going to be an attorney. What drove you to get to that point to say, you know what, like, I can do this. Like, I have ADHD, but I can be an attorney and do this wonderful thing with my life. Well, you know, that was uh, never really a problem because uh, school is pretty easy for me. So I was able to mask that I wasn't doing any of the reading, that I was doing all of my homework, like as the teacher was collecting it. And so it was just pretty easy for me to get by. I figured out ways, you know, my own strategies that were not necessarily good ones, but I had really no problem all the way through college. I will say law school was a bit of a reckoning and especially needing to actually study for something, which the first time I really, really did that was in law school and even more so for the bar. That was a challenge because by that point, you know, I was 24. I had never really had to study for much of anything. And so Most ADHD people, they hit a life change. Some people, it's moving from high school to college. Some people, it's getting married or having children where there's enough that changes and enough stress is added that it suddenly becomes really difficult and the ADHD symptoms are very exacerbated. So when I moved into the professional world, that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to have to think of some workarounds because I'm really having challenges. I never thought about what a job would look like in the day to day. And so the first day I sat down at my desk at my first job as an attorney, I was like, oh, right. I hate sitting at desks so much. (laughs) And so it was a really rude awakening. And I kind of had to figure out workarounds from there. So when leaders like in the healthcare area have individuals who are working for them who have ADHD or anything on the spectrum from ADD, ADHD, any of those things, how can leaders be more inclusive and understanding to those who have ADHD so that we can support them in being successful in their careers? Well, that is a great question. First of all, it's very likely that one or more of those leaders have an ADHD brain. We tend to be in the C-suite a lot. We tend to be founders and high up in the food chain because of our innovation and creativity. So If you yourself aren't ADHD, it's likely that one of your most senior people along with you are. And part of making workplace ADHD friendly, especially when you have someone on your team like that, like your C-suite team, is realizing their strengths. So that person is going to be amazing at innovation and at at generating ideas. They are pretty much never going to get their timesheet in on time or their travel receipts or whatever it might be. So Making it easier for people to focus on their strengths, especially in the leadership, you know, making sure that someone is there to kind of pick up some of those uh, more difficult tasks so that they can focus more on innovation. Then specifically in the workplace, if you or someone you know has ADHD, making it clear that that is a neurodivergent friendly workplace, which is very rare. Most ADHD people have never, for instance, seen like a place that's publicly supporting them. Some of the more tangible things you can do is 
giving, um, for instance, online access to as much as possible. So if they need to, you know, schedule time in a room, for instance, making that so they can do it online and it's as easy as possible. When you have meetings or if there's information that you have to convey, giving out written materials or having it, you know, with a QR code or something so they can get it in writing because we tend to have challenges with short-term memory. Um, that also includes tasking. So if you're telling someone that you want them to do something, if they leave that room and suddenly someone walks by with like hot pink sneakers or something, then that can go right out of their head. So, so getting that written down and making sure that there's time for us to kind of write down what's going on and say it back to you so that there's a common understanding. The other thing is, and this one's really interesting, we have trouble with transitions because when we're in hyper-focus, we are so focused, we might not notice, for instance, that we're dying of thirst. So giving us time to transition between tasks or letting us know in advance when we need to start transitioning is very, very helpful. That's our happy place, and it's hard to pull us out of it when we're just so, so focused on something. Hmm. That's interesting. You know, when you talk about those things, one of the things that brings to mind is what are some of the ideas for those who are neurotypical working for leaders who are neurodivergent and when we have to manage up, what are some things that have worked well for some of the clients you've worked with in managing up, in communicating, in getting what it is that they need? What sort of suggestions do you have for managing up? Great question. We don't talk about managing up nearly enough. So many of these techniques, first of all, can be used with anyone. Mm -hmm. But for instance, when you have a meeting with your supervisor or leader, then going back to your desk, writing an email with what you talked about, and especially any decisions that were made, reiterating the like, okay, this is what we've decided. And this is the next step that we've decided. I'm going to do that on, you know, Tuesday, whatever. Because sometimes we have trouble remembering decisions or finalizing decisions. Sometimes in our mind, they're still kind of open-ended. So getting that down in writing so that we can see it and that we can refer to it later is very helpful. Also, when you're delivering information, most of us, I will not say all of us, most of us are not the people who are going to enjoy 20 pages of dense text. Sometimes that can be challenging for us. Our eyes actually move across paper differently, and it's much more physically, energetically draining to read like that. So we really do well with visuals. We do well with bullet points. We do kind of short and sweet and fast. It works a lot better for us. And then, of course, having the conversation, you know, it's interesting how much people never talk about, okay, well, how do you like to be communicated with in the workplace? It's still so very uncommon. And I think that's unfortunate. It can really, you know, build trust and absolutely help with that communication. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. That's really interesting to talk about, and you're absolutely right, we don't talk about managing up very much. And so those are some really good tips. You know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was that um, you have to go back and repeat things and all the time for processing. What are some of the other ideas that you have to help motivate those who have ADHD? All right, stay with me now. It's not the actual spelling, but I have a mnemonic that I love. I call it funky. F-U-N-C-I. And there are five main ways to motivate our brains and also the human brain in general, but definitely ours. The first one is fun. If it's fun, we are in. We have interest-based brains. So whereas neurotypical people can prioritize tasks and things based on importance, we essentially don't have that ability. We prioritize based on interest. So if something's fun, you've got us. We're obviously going to do it. 
The second one is urgency. And this one is the most used and unfortunately the most stressful. So this is when the paper is due tomorrow morning and it's 11 p.m. and I have to start. I try to help people move away from that one just because of that cost to them, but it's highly effective. Then the N is novelty. If it's new, new people, new place, new sparkly pen, again, we love that. So finding a way to make things novel. The C is challenge, setting a timer, telling your friend that you're going to do something within a certain amount of time, gamification. Those all really get our brain churning too. And then the last one, the best one is interest. So if we're genuinely interested in the topic, So for instance, I'm sure that there are physicians who are really, really into their area and they could just read papers on it all day and just get very engrossed, then there's no problem. That's when the problem is being like, okay, you have to leave your office at some point. Yeah, that's good. So it's funky. So F-U-N-C-I, right? I got that right. I just want to make sure. Funky. You did. (laughs) Okay. Fun, urgency, novelty, challenge, and interest. So it sounds like... In the right environment, those who have ADHD really can thrive Mm -hmm. when that environment is there and they felt welcomed and felt accepted. Absolutely. Yep. Some very famous people who we think had ADHD, people like Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison. Yeah. In the right environment, ADHD folks will really be your superstars. Yeah. You know, as physicians, after our patients leave our office or, you know, at the end of the day... We have other things. We have so many tasks to do, like Mm -hmm. our in-basket with patient messages. We have labs. We have communication from other physicians. And for me, someone who's neurotypical, I found it overwhelming. And I can't imagine how it is with someone who has ADHD. What are some tips that you may have for physicians who just feel so overwhelmed with their in-basket and things that they have to do at the end of the day when they're already tired and they want to get home to their family and it can really lead to burnout. What sort of tips do you have to help those physicians? Absolutely. And I actually do hear this a lot from folks I work with in the healthcare industry, especially who are obviously seeing patients. My first tip would be to sort of break up the time. So when you finish with your last patient, not diving directly into, you know, whatever notes you need to write or whatever you need to do. Instead, like, okay, stand up, stretch, walk down the hall, get some water so that you are able to mentally transition. Then instead of thinking of each task as one giant monolith that you have to somehow climb, I really recommend people think of it more like, okay, what's the first step I can do that'll take 10 minutes? And for most people, 10 minutes feels very achievable. So if I need to, you know, answer all these messages from patients, okay, let's see how far I get in 10 minutes. Promise yourself, if I really feel drained and done, I will pause at 10 minutes and I'll move on to my next task. And you have to trust yourself. So you have to follow through. But most people, I would say, will get into the groove of whatever the task is. And so after 10 minutes, they'll just roll through to completion. But also making sure that you have a reasonable amount of work, that you have systems in place that support you. So making sure that your support staff and folks who are catching these things during the day, that they're able to sift through as many as they can, um, that they're able to help with any documentation you need to do. But really thinking of it, how you can break it down. And when neurotypical productivity books give you this advice, they say by a step. And they usually mean like, okay, return all the messages as one step. Whereas if you're exhausted and overwhelmed, that can feel just impossible. Whereas saying, I will just answer these messages for 10 minutes, set a timer, 
most of us can commit to 10 minutes. Yeah. What has been helpful for me sometimes is I actually have like a stop clock that I got from Amazon and you can turn it on its side. I think it's like in the shape of a hexagon. You can turn it outside and that's like 10 minutes and you can turn it again and it's 15 minutes and then turn it again and it's 30 minutes. So I mean, for me, that's been really helpful to say, okay, I'm going to do this for 10 minutes. Like for instance, one task is like laundry. Okay, I'll do a little bit of laundry for 10 minutes every day. And then maybe I'm not spending hours on the weekends doing my laundry. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly the time you're talking about. And I love it. Um, for things like that, I also really, if you don't mind me just giving you one more tip. Yeah. I love task bundling. And that's where you take a task that maybe you're not as into, like folding all the laundry and pair it with something you do like. So if there's a special podcast that you're obsessed with, only listening to it while you do the task, it will help you do the task. And eventually, sometimes it can fool your brain into thinking that you actually enjoy that task. No, you are absolutely right. I don't watch a lot of TV, but when I do watch it, it's usually Netflix. And so when I'm doing my daughter's hair, I'll actually sit and watch, you know, the guilty pleasure on on Netflix as I'm doing their hair. So it's like, okay, it's I'm doing this task that's not necessarily I'm excited about, but I get to watch Netflix. And so that can be, you know, adding a little bit of fun. That really does work. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I have several friends who do that and they tell me that it also works on their children. They look forward to having their hair done, even if it's going to be like, you know, maybe a little ouchy or whatever. Um, and so they look forward to it too. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. One of the things that uh, you had mentioned earlier, and I'd love for you to talk about it, is this idea about the can opener. Like, please tell a little bit about this can opener thing. You said it, I was like, oh my gosh, that's perfect. I'd love to hear it again. Well, so I am left-handed. And for anyone out there who is left-handed and has ever tried to use a can opener, they absolutely do not work. Mechanically, they cannot work with your left hand. And it's incredibly frustrating. And so I, I think of that like ADHD people living in a neurotypical world. The can openers were not built for our brain. But once we find the right tool, and after a very spectacular day of me gently opening the back door and tossing the can opener out into the backyard, my husband got me a left-handed can opener that made all the difference. And so finding that left-handed can opener for ADHD folks, it's like suddenly everything is just so much easier because it works the way our brain works. It works the way we would have have, you know, built out systems and tools. So it's amazing. And it also makes us appreciate our brains a lot more. With most of my clients, when I tell them things like, that's totally normal for our community. Many people don't know. They haven't talked to many people with ADHD and they assume that there is something terribly wrong with them when really it's totally normal for us. It's just that we're in a society that isn't built for our brain. That's a wonderful analogy. So thank you for sharing that. So before we close, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you came up with the name of your company. It's called Interlace Solutions. It's very interesting. And so I would love to hear where did that come from and how does that tie into the services that you offer? I'm glad you asked. Uh, it was a long process to think that up, but interlace is an art form that's really common in Celtic art, you know, the knots you think of in Islamic art, certain African art. And so it's where you see these really intricate, almost not looking. So the way I was thinking about it is with coaching, I want to help people interlace the different parts of their personality, of their lives and of themselves. And so 
through coaching, I help people to make those connections and to figure out how they can make their life better fit together. So that's where the interlace solutions came from. And yeah, we as a coaching firm, I do a lot of speaking these days. My coaches do three kinds of coaching. So we do executive career and ADHD, and they are fabulous. There's something about coaching and just being like unequivocally supported. That's wonderful. If anyone is interested, our website is www.interlacesolutions.com. And I also have a LinkedIn newsletter. It's called ADHD Professionals and Execs. It comes out monthly and I give lots and lots of tips as well as analysis on different things that are coming up uh, for ADHD folks. And frankly, for anyone who wants to be more productive. So um, I do recommend checking that out. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing. And before we end, I have some quick fire questions for you. Let's do it. (laughs) Are you an introvert or an extrovert or a little bit of both? Extrovert. Extrovert. Okay, fun. What part of the country do you live in? I live in Washington, D.C., and I have lived inside the Beltway my whole life. Awesome. What would your dream vacation be? Oh, gosh. Um, I think it would probably be something that is a good mix of like really getting to see, you know, how people live and learn different things and also relaxation. I feel like all one or all the other is kind of a challenge. Um, As far as place, take me anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, take me anywhere as long as I don't have to cook, right? (laughs) That's a very good point. And the last question is, do you have any pets? And if so, what are their names and what are they? I do. I have a pit bull mix and she's like Franken dog. Her name is Penny and she's the most beautiful dog in the world. And I have a 15-year-old cat who is still, you know, making it. And her name's Callie and she's very sweet too. I'm a sucker for pets. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing. And thank you for coming to talk to me today. It's been a great conversation and I've enjoyed learning uh, a little bit more about what you do and the services that you offer because this is something that's not oftentimes discussed and it's something that is important that we should know um, as physicians and as leaders. So thanks for joining me. Thank you. I really appreciate your open-mindedness and your interest. It's lovely. You're welcome. Until next time, thank you all for listening and stay tuned for the episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to this Life, Love, and Leadership for Physicians episode. Did you have an aha moment? I'd love it if you shared it with me on Instagram at drrachelmillermd. That's drrachelmillermd. If you love the show and want to hear more, follow the podcast and give me a rating and a review. If there's a specific topic you'd like for me to cover or a guest you'd like for me to have on the show, please let me know. I love your suggestions.